0: Lord, we do thank you for your word that you give to us, that in it you uh, reveal your plans for humanity and for creation. You reveal in it your gospel, your plan of redemption that you're going to enact through Christ in order to redeem us from our sins. And so we pray that as we open your word this morning, even in the first chapters of this book, that we would remember it is meant to ultimately reveal who you are and what you're doing. And I pray that that would be uh, in our hearts and in our minds as we now look at Genesis 6 through 9. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, by show of hands, who has ever done a home renovation project on their own? Okay, all right. Good for you guys. You're not better than the rest of us. Also by show of hands. Who regrets doing a home renovation project on their own? Fascinating. Lots of hands on both of those. So um, Abby and I are in the middle of uh, renovating, remodeling our master bathroom. I say this to you as a form of accountability, um, because it's taking longer than I had originally promised. And uh, for those of you who have never had the privilege of doing a home renovation project on your own, um, there's actually some stages that you go through as, as you kind of carry out the project. So the first stage is the dream stage. This is where you have your whole project ahead of you, your whole life ahead of you, Um, and you're just imagining what the final project is going to look like. I mean, what do we really want this space to become? Uh, Then there's the execution stage. Uh, That's where you actually start the project. You actually start implementing the plan that you came up with in the dream stage. And that inevitably leads to the third stage called the surprise stage. Um, This is not the kind of surprise that you get on your birthday or an anniversary or Father's Day. Um, This is when you uncover a problem or an obstacle that you did not know existed in your project. Um, It's where you find that the project is going to maybe take twice as long as you thought it was going to take, um, or it's going to cost twice as much as you thought it was going to cost. Um, And that brings us to our final stage then, which is compromise. If you thought that the final stage was going to be completion, it's because you have never done a home renovation project. Um, So in this stage, you start reevaluating things. You evaluate your project, what you've done so far. And the whole goal of this stage is to find a remnant, right? Um, to, To find one thing that you could save. You start asking yourself these questions of what could we live with without updating it? What could we just leave alone? Um, For example, do we really need a new shower? Um, Do we need a shower at all? (laughs) Could we just take baths for the rest of our lives? Um, Again, it's all about finding that to save. The remnant that you no longer have to worry about, it's taken care of. Everything else is going to have to be repaired or replaced. And what we're going to see in the story of Noah, the story that's laid out for us then in Genesis 6 through 9, is that God is going to initiate a fairly extensive renovation project in creation. And he's going to do this through the flood in fact, the way that the narrative is actually written for us, it's as if God is going to decreate the world by undoing everything that happened in Genesis chapter 1. But in that decreation, in that undoing of what was done in the original creation narrative, God is going to choose a remnant Noah, one man to be saved from the destruction. And it's through this chosen one that God is then going to actually recreate things. He'll introduce those good things from Genesis 1 back into the world. Unfortunately, though, we'll also see that Noah, just like in the original creation story, is going to fall. He is going to fail. He's going to eat the fruit of the tree, which is then going to lead to this sort of downward spiral in the next generation and the next and the next. And yet, like we've already seen throughout the book of Genesis, all the way up until this moment, God is going to sovereignly intervene in order to redeem and restore his creation. God is going to step in and once again prove himself as the rescuer, the provider, even in the midst of failure. And so as we uh, walk through this section of Scripture this morning, I want us to look at it through those four kind of climactic moments that uh, I just summarized for us. So in Genesis 6-9, through 9, we're going to see that there's going to be this decreation that happens, this undoing of what took place in Genesis 1 and 2. But then there will be this recreation that takes place as well. And then there will be a fall, just like we see the fall in Genesis 3. And yet even then, God is going to redeem. Redemption will come through God's provision. So starting with decreation then. Uh, We see this part of the story introduced by a a very interesting preface in Genesis 6-5. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, That opening phrase, that the Lord saw, that should be a familiar phrase to us. It's meant to draw our minds back to That garden scene, where God was looking out over His creation, and over and over and over again in the in opening phrases of Genesis, the opening words of Genesis, it says that God saw that it was good. He looked at His creation and saw its goodness. And this is actually going to be a a feature we're going to see repeated over and over again throughout this particular narrative, where the author is going to use Genesis one language to make the reader, you and me, sort of compare and contrast these two scenes. But the implication here in in, uh, verse five is that unlike God's good design in the garden, humanity's rebellion and sin has led to such corruption that now what God has before looked at and seen as good, now he's actually going to look at and only see as Evil. In fact, I'd argue that the decreation that we're going to see unfold throughout this narrative, this, this undoing of Genesis 1 and 2, is actually not so much initiated by God as it is just accelerated by God. In other words, it's the sin of humans that's actually undone God's good creation. We saw this concept established for us back in Genesis 3, right? That that sin is not so much bringing bad things into the world, but sin is actually taking good things and disordering them, manipulating them, corrupting them so that they no longer serve their intended purpose. And in response, God is going to just basically fast forward to the final scene, the inevitable conclusion of this sin, which is ultimately destruction. It is ruin. And we see this destruction or, or decreation communicated actually in a lot of uh, creative ways. Again, it's, it's done by borrowing language from the creation narrative in Genesis 1, um, but it, it really just kind of puts it in reverse now. So for example, in uh, verse seven of chapter six we see God list everything that he's going to erase through the flood he's he's going to uh, destroy man and animals creeping things, uh, birds of the heavens and that's the same terminology the same list used to describe what God created what he brought into existence in Genesis one twenty through thirty it was Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Uh, Another example is in um, Genesis 6.17 and 7.22, where God is going to destroy everything that has the breath of life. And again, that should be a familiar phrase to us, is meant to contrast this moment, this removal of the breath of life, from chapters one and two, where we actually see God give the breath of life. He instills the breath of life in creatures and humans. And then one last one. If you remember, actually in Genesis 1 uh, 20, or I'm sorry, Genesis 1, 6 and 7. God separated the waters <clears throat> above and the waters below on the second day of creation. It says that he put an expanse between them. But then as we go on in this flood narrative in uh, Genesis seven eleven, we actually see that that separation collapses on itself. And those, those two waters are basically brought together. They crash together in order to create the flood. So even God's method of judgment, the way that he's going to actually make this flood occur is done by reversing what was done in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter one. But even in the middle of all this destruction, all this undoing of the good things that were established in the creation narrative. We're still actually going to be given a, a glimpse of hope then in Genesis 7, 13 through 16, because it says that God isn't just undoing creation. It also tells us that he's preserving creation by setting aside this chosen remnant in Noah. And he's going to take Noah and his family and place them on the ark. Not only are Noah and his family preserved, but then we also see in verse 14 that every single category of animal has also been put on the ark. And it says that they've been put on the ark according to their kind, which again is borrowed language from Genesis 1. In fact, even even though everything that has the breath of life outside of the ark is actually being destroyed, again, that, that, that breath, that life is being taken away, everything that is now inside of the ark is actually retaining the breath of life. That's what verse 15 tells us. So, <coughs> excuse me, just picture this for a second. Um, there's a giant act of decreation. It is, it is literally a global catastrophe. Um, there is death all around except for this one single ark And inside that ark, you have a man and a a wife, a woman. They have uh, been fruitful. They've multiplied. They have children or offspring. There are all kinds of creatures of their own kind around them. And the breath of life that was first established in Genesis 1 is now being kept. It's being protected under the shelter of this boat, in other words, what you actually have in the ark is basically this, this small uh, kind of micro Eden that's floating on the waters. You're, you're left with these sort of two images now that exist in the flood narrative. Uh, two images of God, one being that God is the judge. He's going to sentence creation to death because of sin. And yet, on the other hand, you also see God as rescuer. He's going to preserve and protect his good creation from absolute annihilation. And he's going to do that through Noah, who will restore and repopulate the land that the flood has wiped out. And that brings us to uh, the second climactic moment in this story, which is now recreation. So just like the flood narrative in Genesis six and seven, that adopted language from uh, the the creation account of Genesis one. Now we're going to see that that same feature gets picked up throughout Genesis eight and nine as the waters now uh, recede. and And the point of the text that uh, or the point that the text is trying to uh, make, I think, in all of this is that, what God is ultimately seeking to do through Noah is reestablish Eden and restore his good creation, restore that good order in the world. And there's actually a lot of interesting ways that the text parallels itself with, uh, with the first two chapters of Genesis. But I'm just going to highlight um, a, a few for us for the sake of time. So uh, the first we actually see is in Genesis 8.1. So, um, after <clears throat> excuse me, after God remembered Noah, it says He made a wind blow over the earth. Now, uh, to really appreciate what the author is trying to do in this verse, we need to understand that the the Hebrew word for wind and spirit are actually the same word. And so, when you make that connection in your mind, you realize that this description. Uh, of, of what's happening kind of post-flood is actually very similar to the description of the land in Genesis 1-2 before God had formed it and filled it. That the, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters just like the wind or Spirit is now blowing across the waters here in the opening words of Genesis 8 so we're, we're meant to see these opening words of the chapter as basically a reset. Creation is now returning to its original state before God had formed it and filled it. But it's not going to actually stay like that very long. Uh, in fact, starting in the very next verse, we're going to see nearly all of the, the days of creation reenacted by God post the flood. So if, if you want to sound like a uh, biblical scholar in front of your friends sometime and just sound really smart, you can tell them, did you know there's actually two creation stories in the book of Genesis? The first one is in Genesis 1 and 2. The second one, though, is in Genesis 8 and 9. And they'll be like, we don't care. All right, so um, so in Genesis 8 2, We see that the waters that were crashing in on one another, remember we saw that in in chapter seven, it's what causes the flood. Those waters are now closed off from one another again. And so it's bringing our minds back to the second day of creation when God separated the waters above and below. Again, he put this expanse between the two. And it seems that as, as now... the the flood subsides, he's closing off those two waters once again. Uh, Then we see in verse 3 of chapter 8, it says, the waters receded from the earth continually, which uh, references a very similar kind of image on the third day of creation, where God made the dry land appear from out of the waters. So in both cases, you get this image of the land almost coming out from underneath the water, like it's, it's rising up out of the water or the water is shifting in such a way that it actually exposes the land underneath it. And then this is maybe actually my favorite allusion to Genesis uh, 1 and 2. But in Genesis 8, 4, it says that in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat, just like God rested on the seventh day of creation. And so at at the start of this chapter, we have a a land that's formless and empty. Uh, It's covered in water. And then we see God separate those waters. He closes them off from one another. He establishes dry land for creation to thrive on. And then in the next several verses, we're also going to see that, that God fills that land with creatures and humans that have the breath of life. And both of these groups, humans and creations, both of them are given a very familiar directive by God, which is be fruitful and multiply. In other words, God isn't just returning creation back to how it was before the flood, He's returning creation back to how it was in the beginning. He's restoring Eden, and his blessing is being restored in creation. And it seems that that what he's doing in all of that is is actually through this one man, Noah, who's described throughout the, the first section of this passage, he's described as righteous and obedient. He comes from the seed of the woman. We talked about this last week, that through the line of Seth is actually the line that Noah now comes. And and Noah is going to actually bring salvation from God's judgment. So that's the image that we're left with as we come to the middle of chapter 9 now. So once again, God has provided, even, even in the midst of uh, nearly complete rebellion from human beings, right? I mean, the, the language opening up Genesis 6 seems like there is really not a corner of the world that has not been touched by the evil of human beings. And yet, God is going to provide in the midst of all that evil. And that provision is going to come through seed. It's going to come through the offspring of Seth, who is Noah. Noah. Unfortunately, uh, and I did warn you about this last week, so you can't be uh, disappointed, but what we're going to see now is that the story of Noah, as it kind of begins to wrap up, what we're going to see is that even though he has been righteous and obedient, he isn't going to be perfect. And in fact, we're going to see Noah fall in a very similar way that Adam and Eve fell. The sin that had overtaken humanity to the point of God flooding the earth is also the same sin that now runs in the heart of Noah and his family. In fact, the the way that the story is presented to us, it doesn't seem to really take much time at all before that sin begins to show itself. And again, as as we read the way that that Noah is now disobedient as he rebels against God, as he sins, it reminds me at least a lot of what we see in Genesis 3 with how quickly Adam and Eve, after they've been given all of these good things, how quickly they actually rebel against that good order in the garden and eat the fruit. So in Genesis 9, uh, 20 through 21, it says... Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, maybe you, you kind of see the connection already without uh, much explanation, but just like all the previous verses up until this point have compared the flood narrative with the creation account. Now, in this passage, we see Noah being compared to the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. So just like God planted trees to feed the humans in the garden, Noah now plants a vineyard to enjoy. But just like Adam and Eve ate of the fruit which revealed their nakedness in the garden, Noah also indulges in the fruit, which leads to his nakedness in his tent. And in both cases, the result of their foolishness, the result of their their disobedience and rebellion is actually this disharmony now that exists from generation to generation to generation. For Noah... Uh, his son, Ham, seems to uh, dishonor his father in some way while he's naked. Although we, we don't really know exactly what takes place because uh, the text is is pretty vague. But what is clear from the text is that um, we're supposed to realize that in some way, Ham has dishonored his father and the other sons, Shem and Japheth, have honored their father in the way that they have dealt with this very precarious situation. So what, whatever Ham is guilty of, the consequence is a curse that's then issued by Noah. And we're going to see that curse actually in Genesis 10 trickle down all the way through Ham's lineage. Again, this is going to be generation after generation after generation. In fact, in, in chapter 10, we see Ham's line linked now to places like uh, Egypt, to Canaan, to Babel, to Nineveh. These are places and people groups that are known primarily for their rebellion against God. So even with with a fresh start, humanity is still going to prove itself to be incapable of actually solving its worst problem, which is sin. Even, Even when God gives them a new Eden, And he blesses them with every single thing that they need. We're going to see the same ending cycled over and over again. As humans rebel, they reject God's good order. It leads to separation and destruction in creation. Now, just in case you're feeling uh, maybe a bit frustrated at this moment or disappointed, I think that's actually about where the text wants us to be when we come to the end of this story. It does not exactly end on a high note, right? It ends at a pretty low point in Noah's life and, and even sort of highlights this low point for an entire generation to follow Noah as well. God has literally restarted creation by eliminating all the evil people from the face of the earth. He's chosen this one righteous man on whom he's going to essentially rebuild all of this humanity. Noah's gonna be the head of the new humanity God is forming. God has created Eden, essentially, for the humans to enjoy and to care for it. So, you know, at least as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, man, if any plan were to work in order to redeem creation from sin. Surely it would be this one. Let's just demolish everything, gut the walls, and we'll stick with the solid bones and rebuild, right? Like classic remodeling philosophy. And yet almost shockingly, we're going to see basically a one-to-one copy between Adam and Eve and Noah. And that should leave us scratching our heads for a second and just, and just wondering, okay, what in the world then is going to be an effective strategy for actually undoing sin's corruption? What is God going to do in order to really truly address sin and restore his creation? But what's interesting is that there seems to really be one person in this story who does not seem surprised by anything that's happening with Noah or with Ham or the generations to follow. There seems to be one person who who is unfazed by what I would see as a fairly disappointing conclusion to an otherwise very fascinating story. So back in Genesis 8, after God has flooded the land, after he's destroyed everything outside of the ark, he says in verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Why? Because the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, the, the reason why that is significant is because it's almost the exact same conclusion God makes about humanity before the flood. So in Genesis 6, 5, it says that God saw that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. In other words, the judgment of God that comes through the flood has changed nothing in the human heart. Man has remained the same through all of this. They are evil from their youth. But what does change is actually God's heart toward humans. Even though man's heart is always evil in the sight of God, in this moment, he still chooses to enter into a covenant with humanity. He still elects to actually offer a promise and a a freedom from any further curse. And the only reason, according to the text, is because he smelled the sweet aroma of Noah's sacrifice. That's what Genesis 8.21 tells us. It's the sacrifice that was worthy, not humanity. It's the sacrifice that's going to actually bring redemption, that's going to establish this promise between God and man, not the righteousness of man. And it can, be, it can be tempting for us to read this narrative about Noah and the flood, or even narratives like it, and walk away with the application that we just need to be more like God. Noah. I mean, Noah is the guy to live up to. He was righteous. He was obedient. He was even courageous when he he built the ark, just like God instructed him to do. But you know who who we're really like in this story? We're like Noah's family. We are unrighteous people who need a righteous one chosen by God, who will save us from the judgment to come. And there are, there are some of us in this room who, if we're honest, have been relying on our own self-righteousness in order to save us from that judgment. If you're not sure if you struggle with self-righteousness, let me just give you uh, two simple tests. One, your confidence before God is dependent on how you compare to the morality of other people. So if you were to stand before God and he asks you why you should be spared from judgment, your response would essentially be, well, I'm not the worst. That's that's one test to determine if you maybe struggle with self-righteousness. But another one is that when you learn about the genuine righteousness of God, when you encounter that righteousness you respond with little or no conviction. That you are blind to the gap that exists between a holy God who is your creator and your judge and the lack of holiness that you are guilty of and defines every single part of your life. But friends, as we read the story of Noah in Genesis 6 through 9, one thing is clear. None of us will be able to stand when the waves of God's judgment sweep through this world. When the waves of God's judgment overtake what has been created. All of us are evil from our youth. That's what the text says about us. And so how can we be spared just like Noah's family was spared? Well, the answer, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21, is Christ. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So just like Noah offered a sacrifice before God to atone for humanity's sin, God himself offered a sacrifice of his own son in order to atone for our sin. Just like Noah was a righteous one chosen by God, Jesus is also the righteous one chosen by God. And yet he is without any sin. And in Christ, we can experience genuine, eternal, lasting redemption. He's the better Noah, and we can be made righteous by his sacrifice. Christ is our salvation. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our refuge from the judgment of God. Because in Christ, God looks at us and says, you have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Friends, our righteousness will never be enough to spare us from God's rightful judgment. But God in his kindness has given us Jesus as the perfect sacrifice as the atonement for our sin. And it's in him that we can be made righteous before God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, we thank you so much that although we see failure in the story of Noah, God, we also see your redemption foreshadowed that you provide for us through this seed of the woman who we know is ultimately Christ, that through him we can be made your children. We can be made righteous heirs of your kingdom, spared from your judgment, and instead ones who experience your love and your provision. And so if there are those of us in this room this morning who have never truly experienced that righteousness and that forgiveness, I pray that they would now come before Christ knowing that their own righteousness will never be enough to quench your judgment. But in Christ, your wrath has been served. In Christ, we have refuge and safety. In Christ, we have righteousness. And so we thank you. We thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.